Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. Have you ever ventured over to any of the Great Lakes shorelines in Michigan and admired the different lighthouses? Did you know that there are over 120 lighthouses that dot the lake shores of Michigan? And also, did you know that some of those lighthouses are thought to be haunted? Today, I have a very special guest, Diana Stampler, who's the president of Promote Michigan, and she is also the author of two books on Michigan's lighthouses. One book is Michigan's Haunted Lighthouses, and the other is Death and Lighthouses on the Great Lakes. Today we're going to talk about some of those fascinating stories, and so you might want to grab a bowl of popcorn, put on the tea kettle, and cuddle up with your dog for security, as we're going to explore some spooky tales. Welcome to the show, Diana. Thanks for taking time to be on the show today. It's Oh, thanks for having me, Michael. Uh, you know, it's uh, we're going to take a little walk on the dark side tonight. Yeah, it'll be if fun. If you're okay with that. Absolutely. <laughs> this is the fun stuff, the, the curiosity. I think there's always that curiosity about lighthouses that there's, it's a lonely job and there's always a story behind it, you know, so... You know, that is, you know, very true in our earliest light in Michigan dating back to the 1830s. So before Michigan was even a state, 1820s really, um, and they were desolate. If you think about, you know, you go visit lighthouses today and you've got highways that'll take you there most of the time. Yeah. But uh, 200 years ago, that really wasn't the case. You were, you didn't have roads and you were traveling um, on rutted trails, horse trails, and often in remote areas. Think about trying to get to the Keweenaw Peninsula. Right. That must have been something back then. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was an ordeal and you really um, had to, to be dedicated to that. And, but you know, people were traveling by water because of our beautiful great lakes here. And it does lead to a lot of amazing stories for sure. Cool. So great. So could you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? How did you become interested in this subject as a writer? Well, um, I've been interested in writing in general. I, uh, since elementary school, uh, was born and raised in Southwest Michigan down in Plainwell and went to Western Michigan university and in the late, uh, I guess, late 90s, I started working for an organization in Grand Rapids called the West Michigan Tourist Association. And my first project with them was cataloging all of the lighthouses on Lake Michigan. Mm-hmm. And it was basically a spreadsheet that had, you know, columns. And I had to go through and before the Internet really wow. took off and, and make a list of, you know, a lighthouse uh, South Haven and when it was built and how tall it was. And um, all the way around the lake, there's over 125 lighthouses on Lake Michigan. And, you know, that was pretty boring. The boring part of it was the spreadsheet. But as I was making calls and visiting the, the lighthouses and the museums, I started hearing really interesting stories about the lighthouse keepers and other uh, activity at the lights. And these ghost stories just uh, just hooked me. And um, my daughter, who um, also still lives down in southwest Michigan, she had her first ghost encounter when she was four. Wow. So I kind of have had that as part of uh, of my life. And even 
earlier than that, interestingly enough, my daughter's first ghost encounter was at a place that my mom had an encounter at when I was a kid. And so, you know, it just was these stories that just something about them all just kind of clicked with me. And and being the daughter of a genealogist, I was drawn to the story of the keepers themselves. And mm-hmm. I just, I, I couldn't leave it alone. You know, I just had to keep digging into the lighthouses and, and to the ghost stories themselves. How, how many lighthouses did you visit that was on your list? Well, um, when I put my book together, there's only 13 in the book. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, if you're going to talk haunted things, 13 is the number you want to you want to choose. Uh, but there are over 50 of the lighthouses in Michigan, and, and we have more lighthouses than any other state here at 129. But about 50 of them have ghost stories, and so I picked the 13. And at the time, uh, I had not been to all of them. Um, I have, I believe, since made it there. Um, Fort Gratiot was the last one I visited when my book was in production. That's over in Port Huron, mm-hmm. and it's our oldest lighthouse. Um and I think out of the 129 lights in Michigan, I have been to uh, probably close to, to 85 or 90 of them. Wow. Some of the offshore ones I haven't been to. Interestingly enough, for some odd reason, I haven't been out to Little Sobble Point in Mears. And I think that's the only one on our stretch of Lake Michigan that I haven't seen. Um, but it, uh, it it is, I think, our, our the, the most iconic thing about the state of Michigan outside of the Mackinac Bridge. Yeah, it is. It is. It really is. Uh, some of them are really hard to get to, but as you mentioned, you know, some of them you can drive right up to these days. So were there any of these stories that you included in your book that um, happened on the, the southern Lake Michigan shoreline? Oh, absolutely. In fact, the very first chapter is uh, Southwest Michigan. So uh, when I picked the 13 lights, I wanted to, you know, make sure they were spread out geographically between both peninsulas and the the three primary Great Lakes that uh, surround Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, and also picking stories that had um, great historical photos and things like that. And so the first chapter is uh, the Lighthouse Keeper's Dwelling in South Haven. Oh, really? Which is uh, haunted by the ghost of Captain James S. Donahue. Um, and, you know, he was a fascinating man. Uh, many of the light, early Lighthouse Keepers were actually um, Civil War soldiers. Mm. And when the war ended, uh, or if they were released, as uh, was Donahue's case, injured, um, he was... Uh, not even living in Michigan, he, he located to Michigan and uh, applied for the job. And what was fascinating about him as a lighthouse keeper was that he had lost a leg in battle. Wow. So he recuperates, moves to Michigan, gets married, starts his first family, gets hired as the lighthouse keeper, and has to climb a lighthouse tower on a daily basis on a peg leg. Wow. I mean, talk about dedication. Yeah. I mean, de- lighthouse keepers were dedicated in general. Um, but I, I often think about how uh, how much more effort he had to put into the job. And in South Haven, if anybody's ever been down there, of course, most people know the, the red lighthouse there at the end of the pier uh, right downtown. Uh, you'll notice there's no um, house attached to it. He actually lived in a and a house that still sits there up on a bluff overlooking the Black River, okay. a, I don't know, a block and a half away, two blocks maybe. Um, and it sits up there. So he had to actually uh, go out of his back door, 
and walk down a set of uh, steps that had been built into the hillside Mm -hmm. and then walk down along the river. And then the cat, the pier or the catwalk, depending on conditions, just to get to the tower itself. Wow. And he did that for like 35 years, 40 years. Wow. And you, you listen to stories like that, and he's credited with saving 15 lives. Um, and he was well-known in town, had other businesses, but so dedicated to his light. And I guess when you hear that and how much effort he put in, it really is no surprise that his spirit remains on in the keeper's residence. Yeah, it was really a special place for him, I, I would imagine. It was, you know, he he had his f- entire family there. And so visitors uh, and volunteers there, it's now a part of the Michigan Maritime Museum. Uh, they'll hear him walking around uh, up in the light in the keeper's residence. And as you can imagine, it's a very distinctive sound if you have a peg leg. Yeah, yeah. Makes it easy to identify who the ghost is. Yeah. In the early days, how were the lights done? Were they like a, a torch flame that a, that a keeper had to to keep lit or, I mean, the days before electricity? So um, you're familiar with how a, a kerosene lan- lantern works? Yes. It's like that, only magnified. So uh, it would there would be this reservoir for the fuel, uh-huh. so whale oil, lard, kerosene in later years, yeah. uh, and a wick wow. uh, like you would have. And then it was surrounded um, by uh, these magnificent beautiful crystal Fresnel lenses that were manufactured in France. Um, and they came in different sizes depending on uh, where it was located, uh, larger, um, larger Fresnel lenses in more important parts. Um, I think typically in the Great Lakes, they were third or fourth orders, but you would see a couple larger ones. And they would project out um, the, the, if you've ever seen a Fresnel lens at any of these museums, uh, they're basically thick um, crystal-like pieces that are prismed out, and the light would reflect off of that and then send it out into the lake so that the the ships traveling would be able to see, you know, 12, 15, sometimes 18 miles out, depending on the, the size of the lens. And that would be guiding them to safety. Now the len- the the lights were different. Um, some of them, uh, in you know, as we get through the history of them, would be white uh, light. Some of them later would be green or red. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would have an on-off pattern, kind of if you think somewhat similar to uh, Morse code, um, because a if you imagine that you're traveling in 1850 through the Great Lakes and you see a light in the distance, you kind of need to know what light that is, what port it is at. So every light had its own um, light pattern so that those ship's captains would know, hey, I'm looking at a light, it's white, it's three seconds on, one second off, that must be the light at this particular port or that port. Wow, what a system. That's why you also, what an amazing yeah, system. It, it, I mean, you really had to memorize a lot of that. I'm sure they had a logbook too, but to, to know all that before GPS took hold. And then during the daytime when ships would travel, you'll notice um, that there are no duplicate lighthouses that look the same in terms of tower structure, building structure, and the day mark, which is the, the um, how it's painted. 
because again, as those ships are traveling, they need to be able to look off in the distance through their, you know, their binoculars or whatnot. Um, they would need to look over and say, oh, that's a black and white striped lighthouse tower. That must be Big Sobble in Ludington. Huh, so that's interesting. there were a lot of things that differentiated those. That's That's really amazing history. I mean, that's a part of the maritime history i bet a lot of people don't know that's that's quite something you know and and did they did the lights rotate or were they fixed or did it depend on the the lighthouse um i believe it depended on the lighthouse but in most cases they would you know they would rotate out okay um and obviously um a little bit different because if if it's out you don't need to to show the light all the way necessarily out into town. So I imagine that there was a system. So you weren't blinding all of the neighbors with the right. that light as it was going off at night. Um, but, you know, so the lighthouse keeper would go out every day. And um, when you burn uh, kerosene or oil like that, of course, it creates a lot of soot. So they were forever cleaning that for now lens, they also had to clean the interior and exterior glass around the lantern room. They had to go up several times a day and trim the wick. Um, the, the mechanism for the, uh, the, the rotation would be op operated much like a cuckoo clock. So you would wind it up. And well, of course, you'd have to go up and do that several times a day, particularly at night. So these guys, ladies too, we had a lot of women, um, were, on the clock, nonstop, particularly in stormy weather where they would have to, to make sure that that light stayed lit. And Donahue down in South Haven, many times uh, we have stories of him uh, sleeping in the, in the tower of the lighthouse itself so that he didn't have to go back and forth in bad weather. And he was out there sometimes two or three days on end making sure that, that everything stayed lit to protect the shoreline for those, uh, for those early mariners. Wow. The, um, Die from natural causes, or is this something? Uh, I believe he did die from natural causes. I, it's uh, escaping me at the moment of the exact mm -hmm. cause of his death. But he he lived on for, for quite a number of years, and um, he is buried in South Haven. Um, he passed away in 1917 at the age of 75, wow. uh, buried at Lakeview Cemetery just outside of downtown South Haven. Um, and one of the things when I was researching the book and, and many of these stories, I mean, I've known Donahue's story for over 25 years. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was preparing for the book, um, I did added research, but I also went as often as I could to the cemeteries where these keepers were buried um, to pay my respects to them. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I want, uh, you know, without them and without their courage and and strength in their in their industry and their passion for what they did. Um, I wouldn't have a story to tell or multiple stories. You know, I wouldn't have a book. And and um, I always want them to feel like I'm telling their story in a respectful way and uh, helping keep their legacy alive. And so uh, we do often visit the cemeteries as I'm out doing research for for the lighthouse keepers whenever possible. Well, that's that's nice to have that connection to your work i mean it's also i i know the same feeling i'll go research a story about someone and then i i feel compelled to go find their their headstone you know if they if mm -hmm. it exists not a lot not all the time do they exist anymore in the old cemeteries but uh it's kind of gets you connected to who they were or where they were at least when they were buried so what story would you say that you encountered that you found the most compelling when you researched it um, so 
for me in, in Michigan's haunted lighthouses, I think the, the story that resonates the most uh, has to do with South Manitou Island. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were, uh, again, another Civil War soldier, ironically, uh, named Aaron Sheridan and his wife, who was an official assistant keeper, which is a, a great part of the story. And, and I tell hers in greater detail in my Ladies of the Lights um, presentation that I give. Um, but years ago, Back in those early days when I was working at uh, West Michigan Tourist, I actually met descendants of the Sheridan family, and they live in Allegan County. They live in Saugatuck. Mm-hmm. And um, I've spoken in that community and have had a chance to meet a couple of members of the family. And I think, um, I think that really solidifies that connection. I mean, I felt like knowing them – and being able to tell their family's story uh, in the in the book, and being able to carry it on and seeing early photographs, and again, just knowing the family, I think really um, brings it to light to me. And interestingly enough, um, the family, Aaron and Julia, and their youngest son Robert died in a in a shipwreck in March of 1878 when they were returning to the lighthouse, and so their their death was pretty tragic. Um, and, um, one of their sons, another one of their sons went on to become a lighthouse keeper himself and served at the Kalamazoo river light in Saugatuck and several other lights in Southern Lake Michigan. And he, uh, ended up committing suicide and his story is in greater detail in my second book. Hmm. So this family is the only one that's in, that carries over into both, uh, both of my books. And, we went out to South Manitou. I've been there several times, but when we were out there, gosh, the summer of 21, I guess it was, uh, we finally made it to the cemetery. And, and Aaron and Julia's bodies were never recovered, but in 2008, the family placed historical markers in the cemetery uh, to remember them. And so we finally made it out to that. And, and that was really an emotional day um, just to, to be there where the family works so hard. Um, because you know, the, the Island is part of the sleeping bear dunes national lakeshore. And for a long time, they weren't able to place these memorials out there because of the rules and regulations in the national parks and their continued dedication and ability to, to ride it out. They ended up finding out a loophole that allowed for them to finally place these markers is because you can do veterans memorials in the national parks. And Aaron, as I said, was a civil war uh, veteran. And so the family finally got that, that piece of um, history for that. And then when they finally put the Fresnel lens back in the tower out there, not long after that, um, one of the descendants got to turn the light on for the very first time uh, again. So wow. it's just been pretty um, – it, it's just been a family that I f- almost feel, because I know members of the family mm-hmm. or have met them, that I have a little bit of a special connection to. Wow. And is there a cemetery on South Manitou Island? Uh, there are actually two, maybe three. Wow. So there was actually uh, people that lived there at one time. Because I know now yes, it's more uh, of a national park. It's a, a place you can go camping yeah. and whatnot. And Yeah. When the Sheridans were there in the 1860s and 70s, there were 250 people living out there. Wow. Um, and several of their dis- uh, members of their family, um, they had lighthouse keepers in both Aaron and Julia's family. Uh, before them. And they did a lot of farming out there. And an interesting side note is that uh, they grew 
award-winning rye out there, um, and mm. it was used. Um, it is being grown again by um, a local distillery in Michigan, and they are using that rye to make rye whiskey. Interesting. And it is uh, a spinoff of that same um, strain or the same type of rye that's out there. And when we were there in um, in the summer of 21, we actually saw the rye field and a little sign out there. So it's another little, uh, you know, you got spirits at the lighthouse and you're going to have spirits made with the rye whiskey. So they kind of go hand in hand out there. Well, South Manitou Island has been one of those bucket list items I've been wanting to go to uh, for quite a while. I may just have to make a trip out there this year to, to check it out. That sounds like a fascinating a place great- to tour. Yeah, it's a great place, and they do day trips there, so you can go out for four or five hours and come back. Mm-hmm. You're not compelled to have to spend the night because it is all rustic camping, and it is a you know a thought you, you can't just uh, you got you got to plan that one out a little bit. Yeah. But it is definitely worth the trip. So there's some murder stories related to lighthouses in one of your books. Can we talk about some of those? Yes, absolutely. So after the first book was done, and um, my editors came back and said, well, what have you got next? And there were several stories that didn't quite fit into the haunted theme, but they fit in um, into this true crime world. And that's another fascination for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so as I started digging in, um, I found some really interesting stories uh, throughout the Great Lakes region, not just in Michigan. And so this one, um, I actually enjoyed, I think, writing and researching this book a little bit more um, because a lot of the stories were new to me. I like I learned personally, I learned a lot more researching this book because the other stories, the haunted stories I've known for so long, you know, I could tell them in my sleep. Mm Um, but learning about lighthouses outside of Michigan and, and places uh, that I wasn't necessarily familiar with was really insightful. And I got a chance to visit places um, like South Bass Island uh, oh. in Lake Erie. And I got to go, I had been to, to Door County in 25 years and so made a trip out there uh, to see some things. There were some places in Canada that we couldn't get to because I was doing the research and writing during uh, the lockdown. So I couldn't get over there. But mm-hmm. um, there's one particular uh, storyline that's it's quite fascinating. And it, it does take place in Michigan up on Grand Island. And uh, Grand Island is just outside of Munising. Okay small little island there with two lighthouses. You could take a, a like a five minute, 10 minute ferry ride out there and, and hike around. And in, uh, in 1908, the two lighthouse keepers there, um, came, it was a Saturday and, and, um, the main keeper, um, George Jenry had gone into Munising to pick up the paycheck for he, and uh, his assistant keeper, who had um, who had just been hired, um, and um, he came back with groceries for the two of them, and supposedly with the paycheck, and they were never seen again. Wow. Um, the Jenry uh, was seen on in his boat going around. They were at the North Lighthouse, which most people don't see unless you're on a boat tour around the island. But um, they found. All of his groceries stacked on the dock. They found his coat hanging in the boathouse down at the water, but he was missing. And Edward Morrison, his assistant who'd been on the job for like three weeks, was missing. 
And they, you know, started a search party to try and find them to see, you know, what had happened. Had they gone out and uh, to bring in their fishing nets and fallen overboard? Had they been uh, murdered? Mm-hmm. Had uh, there were, you know, there are all these uh, stories that, that surface. Uh, one was that um, a local man by the name of William Mather, who didn't really like the lighthouse keeper too much because uh, Mather had a game preserve right next to the lighthouse. And when his, his prize game that he would have for all of his friends to shoot would escape, the lighthouse keeper would just kill it himself and eat it. And so <laughs> Mather wasn't too happy. And there were all these stories about someday I'm going to get you for that. So, you know, did Mather finally follow through on his threats? Mm. Uh, did they fall overboard getting the fishing nets? There were also stories uh, in a letter, actually, that um, Morrison's wife received after he disappeared that basically said, don't, don't be surprised if something happens to me because this keeper's crazy. Oh. So did the keeper, did, um, did Jenry do something? Did he lure Morrison out to the water? And, you know, there's a story that they struggled and, and that, uh, Morrison was killed and that Jenry fell overboard in a drunken stupor and, <laughs> and whatnot. Well, about three weeks after they disappeared, they found a boat, the lighthouse keeper boat floating in the water up by the Alsaba lighthouse, which is up the coast a little bit. Mm-hmm. And there was a body in the bottom of the boat, uh, badly beaten and decomposed. And they ruled it uh, that that he had died by exposure. Hmm. And then about a month after that, the lighthouse keeper's body was found on the beach. And they ruled his death a drowning. Hmm. Um, Very... um, Mild uh, causes of death, I think, if, especially if you look at what the legends have to say about it all. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, this is uh, this is over 100 years ago, so we're never going to know. These are all technically cold cases. They're still all open cases because we, we, you know, no one was ever charged or nothing really happened if if, if something more nefarious was at play. Right. But. Um, Jenry is buried with his family in Munising and Morrison is actually buried, uh, down in Flint. And I was able to find both of their graves during my research as well. Interesting. Yeah. You gotta, you could spin your wheels starting to think of all kinds of scenarios. Maybe somebody followed them home with his, when he got his paycheck, you know, cause, or something like that, you know, there's a lot of, right. Cause yeah, you know, it's interesting they bring that up because they identified, uh, Jenry's body, because he was wearing a keeper uniform or at least the vest and he had papers in his pocket that identified it as him, but there was no talk about the pay. Mm, yeah. Interesting. So yeah, very interesting. Wow. So what was your favorite story that you found in compiling your two books? Well, um, gosh, I mean, there are all some really great, uh, stories and, um, pick one you know that's like asking me who my favorite kid yeah. is or something <laughs> that's right? a tough one when you've written it is a tough one um it's uh you know it, there was a lot of really interesting research um and i think that that is is part of the the draw for me uh and and becoming friends with uh, i did you know with the haunted book i i did a lot of communication with paranormal investigative groups mm. And, um, so it was really interesting to connect with them. Some of them I'm still in contact with. Um, 
but I mentioned, uh, you know, the book had gone to print and in September of uh, 1990, oh, 1991, how about 2021? Mm-hmm. Goodness gracious. <laughs> um, and that no, and that Halloween, we actually went down to Fort Gratiot in Port Huron, and there's a paranormal group there that does active investigations every year. <laughs> so you pay like 50 bucks, and you can be there for six hours with actual ghost hunters. Mm-hmm. And I think there's like 25 people that you pay to participate And they let you, like, if you've ever seen any of the shows on TV about ghost hunting, Mm -hmm. uh, if you're a fan of Zach Baggins and you sit there, they have all of that gear, all of that equipment. So they have EVP readers and and temperature uh, thermometers, and they have divining rods and all these other things. And they, they, I don't know if it's wise or not, but they let you all play with it. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, you're down there. And we recorded some really interesting. uh, fa- recorded some stuff like flashlights going off and on as a response to questions, um, lights coming off and on, temp- major temperature drops when nothing happened in the room, mm. very strange photographs that came out of that whole scenario. And we went in knowing that the group had had made contact with um, Frank Kimball, who was a, a longtime keeper there. He served gosh, I think for 25 or 30 years. And so, you know, we went in um, fully expecting uh, to be able to reach out to him. Mm-hmm. Now, we didn't connect with him, but we did have, you know, they have the spirit boxes and the, and the all of the equipment. So you're hearing voices and you're hearing uh, words and phrases coming out. Mm-hmm. And I think that to me was one of the most exciting parts uh tied to that particular book even though the story that i just shared is not in the book itself um when i give my presentation about it um i do share that and share some of the the interesting photographs that we got um during that investigation that night wow and do your your kids come with you on those tours or (laughs) (laughs) my um i don't think my son hasn't been to one of my presentations since he was uh, elementary school. Oh. He's uh, married with his own family now. Uh, my daughter will occasionally come. My parents uh, often come to my presentations, other members of my family. As I mentioned, I was uh, born and raised in Plainwell. And so I've uh, oh, okay. when I'm in Plainwell or Otsego, where my family still is at, uh, they'll come out and, uh, and listen and support me. And, and that's really um, fun. My dad is a big history buff and a genealogist and uh, to have him in the audience when I'm speaking uh, still makes me a little nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I know, I, I know he's really proud that for, that finally I found an interest in history. I think he's a little confused on why I didn't have it in high school and college when I was taking classes and didn't do so well in history classes in school. Um, I think if I took them now, I would do much, much better Yeah, because it's something that I've grown into. I think when you start doing a, a writing for a book, you you kind of learn to research, and you have to be creative, and you learn from other people. And I, I have uh, started writing my own history book at, at, on true crime, and um, oh. it's the same publisher that you have. I've been working oh, nice. with them on it, so that'll be coming out in the spring of next year. But uh, I, I understand what you're saying. You know, you kind of you're piecing this. It's a it's quite a process to find all the details that you can find. You know, so are yes. any of these lighthouses still um, actively used, or are they just more museums? 
There are still quite a few of them that um, are active lights. Um, and although they don't necessarily serve the same level of purpose, mm-hmm. because ships now have, you know, GPS and phones and everything else. So right. they, of course, are all automated and they're not tended to regularly. Um, but there are also a handful of um uh, like historic preservation groups and keeper groups that manage or up, keep up the various lighthouses. And so you can, um, you can pay to be a volunteer keeper. You can pay for the privilege of volunteering. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can go particularly in the, in the Traverse city area, um, grand Traverse lighthouse and old mission point lighthouse, uh, big Sobble in Ludington has a keeper program where you can stay um, at that lighthouse. And then there are like, um, in Ludington, the North breakwater light, the little Sabo light and the white river light station in Whitehall. They have keeper programs, but they're not overnight programs. Um, they have a couple of them I know up that are offshore. So detour reef, um, lighthouse, which is over near Drummond Island and white shoal, which is the candy cane stripe light in Northern Lake Michigan. Mm-hmm. They have, uh, keeper programs and they're doing restoration. So you're really working when you're out there. Um, only one lighthouse bed and breakfast right now. Okay. Um, which is, excuse me, the big Bay point lighthouse, uh, North of Marquette. It is haunted. So just be prepared that if you read my ghost stories before you go to bed, you might not sleep too well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that sounds like a, that's an adventure book, really, because people are going to want to go see and visit some of these places, you know, once they uh, they read some of the stories in the in the book. And Big Bay itself is just a fascinating place if you've mm-hmm. never been there. Um, it uh, Henry Ford owned the town at one point. It was one of his uh, lumber towns that he would harvest and work from and, and, and harvest the, lum- the lumber for the woody vehicles that he was making back in the day. Wow. And also it was the site, uh, speaking of true crime, of a major um, a murder case in the 1950s, which resulted in a book and a movie called Anatomy of a Murder. Hmm. And uh, it was written by one of the lawyers. And uh, the movie was, uh, I think it was an uh, it was award-winning movie, starred uh, Jimmy Stewart, among other noteworthy people. And the movie was actually filmed in Big Bay and Marquette. Oh, okay. Um, so as a, as a true crime buff, you mm-hmm. might want to look into that. It's a pretty fun story. I, I will definitely have to f- look that one up and watch it. That sounds like a fun one. Especially as Michigan connected, you know. Right. So... Could you tell us a little bit about uh, how we can find your books? Where are the best places? Or do you have a website yourself on uh, you as an author that they should reach out to you on? Absolutely. So uh, my website is promotemichigan.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, so on there, there are a lot of great places on the site to, to visit. One is called the Speakers Bureau. Mm-hmm. So that has a list of all of the upcoming programs. Uh, so for each of these books, I have a presentation and I have even more presentations than I have books. So um, I travel all over the state uh, giving programs, and I will be down in southwest Michigan in October. Uh, just heard it and confirmed a date with the library in Buchanan. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at Hartford and a couple of other places in that area. So as those dates um, are solidified, I add them 
uh, to my website there. Um, there is also, uh, you can order any of the books from my website, and that means that you get them autographed and personalized if you wish. Right. Um, and so if you're buying an autograph one from Amazon, I can't guarantee that it's really my signature. Mm. Okay, that's a good point. <laughs> Very good point. So, and, uh, and, and I don't know, uh, Michael, if, if is this your first book that you're working on? I've been, With- I've written other books in the past, but not on history. So this is okay. my first book on history and uh, so you'll you know this but I'm going to share it with your with your listeners is buy from the author whenever possible mm-hmm. um, because well none of us are getting rich we're not John Grisham or or Stephen King or any of those people exactly. but um, the the royalty rate when you buy a book uh, from a local author on Amazon is and is you know less than a dollar a book mm-hmm. um and uh so buy from the author whenever possible or i do like to support local bookstores because at least that's supporting local economies and yep. and uh, i have a great relationship with local bookstores so those are my two best suggestions and and uh those those big box stores online uh for books mm-hmm. only when absolutely necessary yep uh, so that's my little social call out. For yeah, I, I totally for agree. I, whenever possible, I try to direct people to the author's website for that reason, because mm-hmm. the royalty difference is tremendous. Now, you promote Michigan. You do more than just the book selling. You're doing you have other um, activities you're doing on Promote Michigan. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. So um, I founded this company in August of 2004. Mm-hmm. And I do marketing and promotion, uh, event planning for businesses and organizations um, around the state of Michigan. So I just came off of a four-day writer's retreat in Walloon Lake, um, where I scheduled and coordinated all of the right activities for up budding writers. Um, and, uh, and we were led by, um, the grandson of Ernest Hemingway. Oh, really? Who, um, Ernest and his family had a, still have a summer cottage on Walloon Lake. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he spent his first 22 summers of his life there and learned to write and hunt and fish up there, even though he's from Oak Park, Illinois. And so, uh, we brought his grandson in to lead the activities last week, um, and, uh, so I, I'm still on a, a literary high from all of the great, uh, writing that was going on, uh, at that event. Uh, I work a lot with the brewing industry in Michigan. And so, uh, I'm also gearing up for some beer festivals. Oh, good. Um, and I work with, um, some great companies not far from, from you down there. So I've worked over the years with St. Julian Winery and Schuler's Restaurant on marketing and promotion for them. All very familiar um, to me. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, we put out news last week that uh, Schuler's Restaurant is, and is uh, bringing hotel rooms back to their historic building, and they will mm-hmm. be opening up a five-room boutique uh, Royal Hotel in June. Wow. So I, uh, I do a lot of that, and then I do freelance writing for a variety of magazines and uh, do a lot of research. I mean, I I do so much, I can't even list it all. Uh, we'd be here till tomorrow. Oh, that's great. Trying to, trying to go through it. But basically promoting the people, the places, and the products of this beautiful state in which we live. Great. So if anybody 
wants to visit Promote Michigan, I'm going to put the link to Diana's website in the show note descriptions. That way you can get a hold of both of these books that she has and also take a look at the calendar that she has in case you're listening in a different part of Michigan and you hear about some of the programs that might be in your neighborhood because she does do events all over the state. Sounds like a lot of those events are are really a lot of fun uh, that you (laughs) want to go to. So I may have to talk to you a little bit after the show about having you do an event here in Battle Creek, Michigan. We have a new history education center that's about ready to get dedicated in May. So uh, nice. I mean, um, I'm I'm the one in charge of the calendar, so I'll be. Uh, there you go. Definitely want to chat Battle with you. Creek. Yeah. So be... I met Captain Kangaroo in Battle Creek. Did you? <laughs> Back he was there for the opening when Kellogg Cereal City opened up years ago, and wow. that I have a picture of him and a picture of James Earl Jones, who is also from Michigan, mm-hmm. and those are two of my greatest celebrity encounters. Wow. I mean, come on, Captain Kangaroo. Yeah, well, James Earl Jones is big, too. I mean, my gosh. Yeah. The voice of so, uh, Darth Vader, you know, and everything else that he's And Mufasa. Po- and Mufasa. I grew up with the Lion King. So, yeah. So, uh, Battle Creek is is wonderful. And uh, I'll have to get back down there. I haven't been to the uh, to the Willard Library in many years, mm-hmm. but I have uh, presented there before. I'll actually be... Uh, it's a great little bookstore in Lansing, in Old Town Lansing. It's called, and you'll want to know this one, Michael, as well. It's called Dead Time Stories. Yes. And all they sell is haunted and true crime and murder. Mm-hmm. And oh, it's a, I'll be down there visiting them soon. It's a beautiful uh, bookstore if you get a chance to check that out. I'm super excited to read your book now. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to put the final touches on it and get it through the editing process in the next month or two here and then uh, get into the fun part of putting all the photos together and. All of that, and they've Exciting. you know, so it should be a lot of fun, and and Jen Carpenter who owns the uh, Dead Time Story Hour yep. bookstore up there, she's been on my show one time. I'm trying to get her back. Oh, um, so it's been she's phenomenal. Yeah, she's quite a busy lady. She's very busy. She works a lot with the Charlotte uh, Museum at the Courthouse Square, and puts yep. on uh, yep. one of the big festivals there for them. And she's got a lot of activities, so she's a hard one to track down. But she's Quite a fascinating lady with that. She that is bookstore. always on the go. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She always has time to do TikTok reels. I don't understand how she yeah. can do that. Yeah. Well, That's one of the things I haven't quite been able to delve into as much as she is. But uh, yeah, she's phenomenal. Well, it has been a pleasure having you on the show today, Diana. And uh, I will definitely put the links here on the episode here, so people can get a hold of your, get your books and reach out to you and find out about your events. Excellent. So I've been speaking with Diana Stamfler, who is the president of Promote Michigan, and she's also the author of two magnificent books, Michigan's Haunted Lighthouses and Death in Lighthouses on the Great Lakes. Definitely a lot of chilling and fascinating reads, so you're going to want to pick those up, make them as gifts for people that really are into unique parts of history and learning a little bit about Michigan. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com, and you can contact me on there. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening.